The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Exodus chapter 20. And our study today is on the first commandment. This is the head of the list of the Ten Commandments that God etched into stones and gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Usually we think that things that are given first are to have primacy. They are considered to be the most important. When we make our list, what we put at the top of the list are the things that first come to our mind, the things that we want to be sure that we don't miss. Um, we want to make sure these things are put ahead of all others. And in one sense, as we look at the Ten Commandments, all of them are commandments of primacy. Every one of them is of supreme importance. James wrote in James the second chapter, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, in one sense of the word, it doesn't matter which of the commandments that you pick. If you break one of them, you're guilty of all of them as far as the condemnation of the law is concerned. Every one of the commandments carries with it a maximum penalty so that there is such unity in God's law that you're not allowed to make any judgments about which ones that you think are the most important to keep. Now, what we do is we often have a tendency uh, to excuse ourselves by saying, here are the things that I do, and I'm not really all that bad because I don't do all of these other things. And the other things that we don't do are the things that we consider uh, are lesser sins, and we don't do uh, the greater sins, and so we're all right. And we think that since we don't do the worse ones, we've made up for that by doing the lesser ones. God does not allow you to grade the commandments in order to gain any kind of merit based upon obedience to the ones that you think are the most important. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle, or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The scribes and the Pharisees had some laws that were of greater importance, some of lesser importance, some they prioritized, some they didn't. And we would have to say that the Lord Jesus taught that all God's law must be kept. Now regarding the law in that way, the way that Jesus put it, he said that to hate someone is as bad as killing them. To, uh, to think a lustful thought about someone is equal to committing adultery. And we see that very clearly in Jesus' exposition of the law uh, in that fifth chapter as he goes on to say, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so the penalty for looking and the penalty for doing is the same in this sense that both of them will bring a judgment of death. Now, as strange as this might seem in our human reasoning, to have an illicit sexual relationship with someone is as bad as putting an idol in your house and saying, this is my God. This is what I worship. 
Uh, you might think about that the next time that your eyes go wandering in the workplace. Now, in this sense, in that sense about condemnation, there is no priority in the commandments. The last one could be first. The first one could be last as far as condemnation of the law is concerned. And God made it that way. So there's no one who could say, well, we've got a system of salvation that says in order to be right with God, the good must outweigh the bad. However, in consideration of this, we see that there is actually a first commandment. And the first is first because it sets the parameters for the discussion that follows. In Exodus 20, God says, I am the Lord thy God. That's verse 2. I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Everything that you are, your heart, your soul, your body, and your mind, belong to God. All of your affections are to be upon Him. And this is exactly the way that Jesus stated it in His response to what is the great commandment in the law. And He prioritized it by summarizing the first four commandments, not because there are no other priorities, but because if you miss number one, then the rest of the list can't be kept. Commandment number one tells us that it is God's right to command. That He is the God who issues these commandments. Now, quite frankly, there isn't a command in the list of the Ten Commandments that's easy for us to keep. Matthew chapter 5 is perhaps the most important chapter in the Bible for the correct understanding of the commandments. The Pharisee said, we've got all of these things down. We are righteous and we keep the law. And Jesus said, you don't understand the law. You've heard it said that you don't commit adultery. You, you, you lust, though, in your heart, not knowing that you've already committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it said, don't kill, and yet you hate, and so therefore you have committed murder. And that was tough. The commandments were very hard. And he went on to demonstrate that those people were more wicked in their heart than they could ever imagine. They had not kept the law. They were disobedient to the very first commandment that they cherished above all the others. If you were to ask a person in Israel, ask one of the scribes and the Pharisees, what is the greatest law? They're going to say, there is one God. We are to worship this one God. And it's very, very hard to defend that position when there is no obedience to this one God. Now, looking back at the Old and the New Testaments, the study of the law is not an exercise in the history of world religions. This is not uh, an explanation of ancient cultures and what they did according to their superstitions and their philosophies of religion. But the Ten Commandments is a look into our own hearts. That this is a very deep, personal look. And it's exemplified by the language of this first commandment. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now in our King James Bible, the old English word thy reflects the personal nature of this command. That it's personal, it's not corporate. Thy is singular. God did not say you plural. Now, it's unfortunate that we've lost the distinctively singular pronoun in modern English, but thy shows us that each of us is personally responsible to God. But as you well know, it's very common today for people to shirk responsibility. Many will say, well, I am the way that I am because society has made me this way. 
Or I am the way that I am because of the neighborhood. It's the hood that I grew up in. That's why I am like I am. But I assure you that when you stand before God, it is not going to be the neighborhood that God appears before Him for you. Social mores and political think tanks are not going to be your defender. You're going to answer to God for yourself, and the standard by which you will be judged is not their standards. You will be judged by these commandments, by the Word of God. And so you'll stand before God and you'll answer this question. Did you have any other gods before me? God, of course, already knows the answer to that question. The thing is, do you know it? How are you going to answer it? What's going to be your defense? Now, I'd like to take you back to the first message from two weeks ago to get back into the flow of our discussion. And if you weren't here for that, uh, this is just going to be very brief, so I'm sorry that we can't go into it all. But to get back into the flow, the first thing that we discussed was the problem of replacing God in the mind. Now, on one hand, we would say that if God is the only God, then how can we make sense of him when he says, have no other gods before me? If there are no other gods, then how do you have one before him? Well, this, this is not an admission that other gods exist, but it's a declaration that man has an evil heart of ignorance in which he replaces God with many other things. The Ten Commandments are actually a list of truths about God. Now, you might think that all it's about is things that you can and you can't do, but these commandments are much more than that. They tell us about God. They tell us about His character. The first four commandments are easily recognizable to be about God, but we also ought to understand that the next six tell us about Him. Those next six talk about the proper relationship that you have with your fellow man, and that is reflective of the way that God deals honestly and perfectly and above board and always with the best welfare of people in mind. And as evidence of that, God gave His only Son to die for our sins. And as the Word of God says, there, there's nothing greater that a person can do for someone else than to give his life for them. And when people make other gods, they upset this perfect balance. And the change in the standard of justice, according to many people and what they believe about it, makes us preferable above others. We judge according to what we think. We become the judge and the jury of sin. Now, for example, the pluralist and the relativist come together and they say there are many truths, but there is no absolute truth. Nothing is actually false. And so we don't even really need to choose what's right and wrong because nothing is wrong. What's right for you is right. Whatever you want to do, that's right. What I want to do is right. That's truth for me. And it doesn't make any difference if the two are totally contradictory to one another. Both of us have our truth. You have your truth, I have mine. And are we so ignorant that we don't understand that this completely destroys the social framework that we actually destroy ourselves with our self-interest when we decide what's right for us to do. Where is God in that system? Where are the Ten Commandments in that system? Well, I'll tell you, they are non-existent because they can't work together. God can't work in a system like that. That's when you make God, make yourself God, God is self. And believe me, folks, that is an imaginary God. 
Now, we looked at this, that the liberal takes a different approach. He looks at the Bible, he reads the commandments, and he's so bad at the interpretation of the Word that he reinvents God. That God turns out to be just like me. God has all the same opinions that I have. We, we, me and God, we're buddies. We're just like this. We, all, we have exactly the same opinions. And the end result of this is that the name of God and my God, my God, I declare what is truth. The pluralist, the relativist, the liberal, they all come to the same conclusion. They have the same imaginary God. I am God. And you cannot reinvent God to what you want him to be. Now, the next question that we would ask is, if he is God, if this is God that we're talking about here, who is he? If this is the God that I must have, then who is he? Well, next we look at recognizing God in the Scriptures. Now, if we take the Scriptures at face value, and if we take this statement made here in the commandments at face value, then we have to admit that what we have here is a special revelation of God. There is a natural revelation of God that's in the creation. The stars, the moon, galaxies, planets, animals, the human body, all of those are proof that God exists. A few weeks ago, I was doing my daily Bible reading, and this is a verse that popped out at me, Job 11, verse 12, that says, For vain man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. Oh, you might have read that many times and glided by and said, well, I don't understand that. And that, that's often the way that we read the Bible. We just pass over it. We don't understand it. Now, I'm not necessarily in favor of modern Bible versions, but I do know this. There are times when you can read and some understanding will come through that you might not get out of the King James. And so the NASB translates that verse in this way. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. Let me reinterpret it for you. An evolutionist will become intelligent when pigs fly. That's my interpretation. And let me translate the verse for you here, uh, uh, or look at it again. To believe, to believe God, we have to recognize that he is well capable of giving a reliable record of himself. Creation is the natural revelation of God, while the Bible is the special revelation of God. And if God is true, and the word here is true that says, I am the Lord thy God, then all of the word of God must be true for that statement to be true. You can't, you can't say, well, I'll pick and choose what I want. No, if you're going to believe this statement, you're going to have to be convinced that all of the word of God is true, or else you're going to disregard that. Now, whatever way that the Bible defines God, that's what he is. There aren't any substitutes that can be made for it. He's the God who created everything. He created the world. He created man. He gave the Bible to explain who he is. Now, in the book of Isaiah, there are many, many verses that talk about this one and only God. Let me give you just a few of these that you can mark in your Bible to show you that there is, in fact, only one God. Isaiah 43, verse number 10, says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Isaiah 44, verse 8, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. 
Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Isaiah 45, verse 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is none else. Isaiah 45, verse 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. The New Testament is equally demonstrative in its declarations. Acts, rather, 4, Acts 4, verse 24, and when they heard this, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Acts fourteen fifteen, and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Acts 17.24, God hath made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, for there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now at this point, I must give you a critical analysis of this question. Who is God? The God of the Old and the New Testaments is Jesus. The God of both Testaments is Jesus. He is the same and only one God who gave us the Ten Commandments. Now this God is manifested in the flesh as Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Colossians 2 verse 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now do you see how all these verses that I read, all the ones in Isaiah compare with Colossians? Isaiah 45 verse 18 says, The Lord created the earth that God himself formed it. The one and only God made all things. So after what we've read in the New Testament, what would that make Jesus Christ? Well, he would have to be the Lord God of the Old Testament. He's the same one who said, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now lest we think that what Paul wrote in Colossians... Uh, that, that he had undue prejudice over the subject. We can also read from John and see what he said. John chapter 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So both Paul and John identified Jesus as this one God, the creator of all things. And then lest we should think that both of them are mistaken, then we would go to Jesus Christ and ask Him who He is. Just, who are you? And Jesus said very clearly who He is. 
Now, in the Old Testament, Jehovah God identified himself as I am. He said that to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And Jesus constantly made use of this very same terminology. I am not of this world. I am the light of the world. And he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before Abraham was, I am. This is the same thing that, that God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am from above. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we could go on with that because that's what Jesus did. Constantly making these statements, I am. I am God. Now to see the identity of the one true God then, you must look to Jesus Christ. This law that we read is the revelation of Him. And that's why Jesus kept all of the law perfectly because that's Him. That's His character. This reveals his character. In the giving of the law to Moses, Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Now, if we learn anything from the Old Testament and from listening to Jesus in the New, it is this demand of exclusivity. I am God. It is me. I am God. And Jesus permits no other allegiances. There can be no allegiance but to Him. He's the only God by which we can be saved. Acts 4, verses 10 to 12. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom He crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by Him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, therefore, therefore, according to what we read in these verses, that the first command cannot be kept unless we reject all claims of any religion but... Christianity to be true. God does not care who likes that statement. He is the only God. Jesus is the only God. And therefore to believe in Jesus is to reject all claims of all other religions. And so it's essential that we reject Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and all other religions. Just this morning when I opened the mail that came uh, today or came yesterday... Someone put it on the on the desk out there. I opened it up, and there was a, a, a large envelope that had a, a note on the outside of it that said, "Post this in your church." And I opened it up, and on the on this flyer that they wanted to post in our church and a bulletin insert that we were to put in, it came from the Church of the Roses, and the and it was announcing an interfaith meeting. Put that in your bulletin about an interfaith meeting. Who's interfaith? Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, New Age, whoever it might be. The Word of God says if you're going to keep this first commandment, you must reject all of it. You can't have part in any of it. Now this is what Israel had to do. They had to reject the gods of Egypt that they just came from. 
They had to reject the gods of the Canaanites where they were going. They had to reject the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Reject all but Jehovah. And we have to do the same. We have to reject all of the gods that try to take the place of the one true living God. And that means that we reject the God of relativism. We reject the God of pluralism. We reject the God of atheism, of pantheism, all the other isms that you want to attach. Name them all. All of them has to be re- have to be rejected in order to obey this first commandment. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says, It's concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. For though there be many that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by Him. Now, the most important summation from all of this information that I've given you is that you cannot be saved unless this God is your God. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. Now, the third thing that we have to ask ourselves is do we, in fact, obey this commandment? Now, this this is first. Are we failing? Do we fail before we ever get to any of the other commandments that are on the list? How do you evaluate that this God that we're talking about is your God? Thirdly, I want to talk to you about reaffirming God in your life. Now let me give you some important questions to consider to help you determine if the God of the Old and New Testaments is your God. How do you determine that? Well, through a series of questions, you can examine yourself. So let me give these to you. First of all, I would say, do you know him? How can he be your God unless you know who he is? Now, to know God is far more than to admit that he exists. Knowing him is to be acquainted with his attributes, that is, those characteristics that make him what he is. Now, if someone asks you, do you know Pastor Smith? And you say, well, yes, I know him. And they say, well, what is he like? I don't know. Where does he work? I don't know. What what does he preach? I don't know. Who is he married to? I don't know. Uh, If you didn't know those things, then you've missed the essentials of who I am. If you don't know those things, you don't know me. If you don't know how I act, where I work, what I believe and what I teach, who my wife is, those things determine who I am. Now, for you to know that God is your God, you've got to know things about him. How does he act? That's in the Bible, isn't it? Um, where, where is he? Where, where is actually the sphere of God's work? That's in the Bible. What does God teach us? Hmm, that's in the Bible. Who's he married to? That's a good question, isn't it? Doesn't the Bible say that the church is the bride of Christ? You see what I'm telling you? God is not your God unless what? You know the Bible. Because that's where you find out all of your information about him. Creation tells you that God exists, but the Bible tells you who he is. So, if you tell me that God is your God, I'm going to ask these questions. And if you say, I don't know, then you haven't proved that you know God. Now, to put it simply to you, if your Bible has dust on it, there's no proof that God is your God. How will you know him? If you can't prove that to me, 
You're not going to prove it to yourself. You're not going to be able to prove it to God when you stand before Him. Do you actually know God? Have you looked in His Word? Do you use the Bible to tell you about Him? If you don't do that, how are you going to say, He's my God? You don't even know who He is. Secondly, do you fear Him? Do you know what it means to fear God? Now, some think that loving God and fearing God are mutually exclusive. I've met many people who say, well, they love God, but they would never think of fearing Him. Oh, they say, God, God is a God of love. God is a, a giant teddy bear in the sky. He is just so awesome. Oh, I just love Him. I could just squeeze His cheeks like He's Grandpa. Oh, yes, God loves. He, he's gentle. He's, he's kind. He is forbearing. He's patient and merciful and He's gracious. Yes, God is certainly all of those things. And because He is all of those things, I cannot repay God with dishonor. I can't dishonor God because He is all of those things. Fearing God is the recognition of knowing that wherever you are, that God knows what you're doing. God sees everything about you, that God is watching you. Fear of God is as the psalmist said, you can't escape Him. That God is on the highest mountain on the earth. God is in the deepest depths of the sea. God is in heaven above and hell itself cannot escape him. Thomas Watson wrote, To fear God is to have such a holy awe of God upon our hearts that one dare not sin. Stand in awe and sin not. Psalm 4.4 The wicked sin and fear not. The godly fear and sin not. And then he quoted Anselm. If hell were on one side and sin on the other, I would rather leap into hell than willingly sin against my God. If you don't fear God and run from sin because of who he is, then God is not really your God. The wicked sin and fear not, the godly fear and sin not. Which of you, those are you in that statement? How do you know that God is your God? Thirdly, do you trust Him? Now be careful how you answer that question because many who claim to be blood-bought Christians don't really trust Him. Now maybe you think otherwise. We're all Christians here. We all trust God. But I will tell you, there's not a person in this room that doesn't have trouble trusting God. Now I hope you remember the Father's Day sermon. That was about Abraham. And we can learn a lot about whether God is our God by seeing the way that he proved Abraham to discover his faith. Would Abraham pass that most grueling test of all? Would he sacrifice his beloved son when it went against all that he thought was reasonable? Now, Abraham's test shows us that it's possible to trust God in the worst of times, to trust him in the most unreasonable times. That is, to trust God when we don't understand what God is doing, when we have no idea where God wants us to go and what He's doing with the trials that He brings us through, yet we still trust God in that. Now, as I said, there are many Christians that say they trust God and they emphatically insist that they do trust God. And they sing about faith, but in their lives they show that they don't trust. And there's one little word that tells us whether you trust God. That is the word worry. If you worry, you don't really trust God. Is he your God? This is what Jesus said. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, 
Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Are you worried about all of those things? How am I going to eat? Where am I going to live? What, what's going to happen to me? Are you like Israel that constantly bellyached about food and water as if God could not supply for them? The psalmist wrote, Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And he went on in that 78th chapter to say, Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth, so a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel. Why? Because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Is that you? Do you worry? God is not your God if you worry because you don't really trust him. Now let me show you another example that many of you wish that I wouldn't mention. Malachi 3 verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Are you guilty of saying that's not true? Do you say, I can't afford to tithe? Why would you ever say such a thing? There's only one answer for it. You steal from God because you think you can't trust Him not to steal from you. He said, if you give, I'm going to open the windows of heaven. I'm going to pour you out a blessing that you can't even receive. And you say, that's not going to happen. If I give to God, He's not going to give it back. He's not going to bless me in that way. He's going to keep it. Is God really your God if you don't trust Him? Yesterday, I was reading something I found actually to be a little bit humorous. Uh, this person was not writing on this subject, but he was making a few comments. And he said, and he got finished, he said, this sounds like a Baptist sermon. And what he meant was, you can't have a sermon without talking about giving. Uh, that's got to be a Baptist sermon. Well, I don't know if this is, this is a Baptist sermon, but it's not put in there for that purpose. It's put here because this would seem to be a determiner to me that if God is your God, He must be a God that you can trust. He is no God that you can't trust. The sparrow knows one thing, and that is food is going to be there. And God said, are you not more valuable? Jesus said, are you not more valuable than many sparrows? How do you know that God is your God? Here's a fourth question. Do you obey Him? Now, we've been all over this one. Inherent in commands is the expectation of obedience. As many have said, this is not ten suggestions. How, how many times have I repeated these words to you that Jesus talked about, that He said, oh, well, well, if I'm your God, and you say that you love me and... Uh, if you do, then you must obey me. If you love me, keep my commandments. Which commandments are those, Jesus? All of them. Didn't we say there, there is no ranking in the commandments? Obedience is good for all of them. If we break one, we break the whole law. Now, if you say, well, wait just a minute. Look at all the good things that I've done. I brought my tithe. I, I, I come to Sunday school. I help in the Sunday school department. I give my Sunday afternoons to... Choir practice, uh, I put a can of soup in the Thanksgiving basket. I've sacrificed immensely for God. And God just as easily comes back and says, what haven't you done? What did you fail to do? If you're going to live by 
the amount of good things that you can do and expect God to pat you on the back, then you're going to die on the heap of failures of not being able to do everything perfectly. You can't skirt any of the commandments and say that God is my God. Now, although that you will fail at keeping the commandments perfectly, you must attack them with the attitude of Exodus 19, verse 8, where the children of Israel, before they were given the law, said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said it before the law was given. And then later, when they found out how hard it was going to be, you know what they said? All the Lord has commanded, we will do. Exodus 24, verse 3, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice, and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. God said through Jeremiah, Before I told you to sacrifice, I told you to obey. Jeremiah 7, For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God. And ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Is he your God? Then don't tell me about all the shame that's in your heart because of all the nasty stuff that you do. Is he your God at the movies? Is he your God on the internet? Is he your God at the office party? Is he your God in your night out on the town? How do you know God is your God? Do you obey him? Closely following upon that question is, are you holy? Now, obedience leads directly to holiness. Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. 1 Thessalonians 4.7, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols for Ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Is it hard for us to see that unless you separate yourself from what is unholy, that God is not your God? How can God dwell in you and God walk in you? How can he do that if you're so much unlike him? Paul says, come out. Don't touch the unclean thing. This is how God will be your God. This is the way that he will receive you. God is a holy God, is he not? Who can have God as their God and be so much unlike him? Well, there are many other qualifiers that I could give you to show you whether God is really your God. But I want to end with this one. Is he your God alone? Here's one way that you can tell. Do you worship him? Do you even know what worship is? I, I, I know you understand that singing is worship, praying is worship, rising above all that we do in the church is the preaching of God's word. Preaching is worship expounding the Word of God. That is the highest form of worship. But did you know that most churches don't understand that? They get very worked up about the singing, the music program, but then they get bored to death with the preaching. 
Most of the worship songs that are sung today are not about worshiping God. They're about how good do we feel as we do it. Our feelings actually are worshipped, not God. And so people go to church and they, and they come home and they say, Well, you know, I just wasn't feeling it today. The song service didn't do that much for me. We weren't rocking it enough today. Who's being worshipped? You see, you can even go to church and worship the wrong God. Now, I hope you do understand. Singing, praising, praying, preaching are acts of worship. But what is worship itself? Well, the English word is derived from worship or worship. It means that our service should be worthy of God or all that God is. In everything that God is, He is worthy. God alone is worthy. Worship is reverence for God. It's to adore Him. It's to be in His presence and recognize that He alone is worthy. To receive all of the acclaim, the worship, the honor, the majesty and praise. Worship is to come before God as the seraphim. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Worship actually sums up all of these things that I've said before. We arrive at the church service secure in our knowledge of God because we have been faithful to learn from Him in His Word. We come with fear of God, knowing that we stand in the presence of the mighty sovereign of the universe who holds every breath that we take in His hands. We come in trust of Him with no doubt that He orders our affairs, that He works all things for our good. And we come in obedience that last night, whatever we did, is just like we would do in the service today. That Sunday, every day is Sunday for a Christian because we are obedient and holy to the Lord God. Worship is to prostrate ourselves, if not physically, then to come humbly of heart and bow ourselves before Him. Now, I, I love this point of worship and the reverence for God that's made in the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 8 in Nehemiah is the reference for our standing as we read the Word of God to the congregation. Nehemiah 8, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all people, all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Is that the attitude of your heart? Knowledge, fear, trust, obedience, holiness? Do you come to worship because He alone is worthy? If you can say yes to these questions, then you pass the test. Yes, God is your God. How do you know that God is your God? Don't have any other gods before Him. Put all of your affections upon Him. Love Him supremely by loving Him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. If you do, then God alone is your God. Do that. And you've kept the first commandment. And now, you just got nine to go. Keep the first one, now we got nine to go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you, Lord, for the great God that you are. You alone are God. We thank you that you have shown us in your word that Jesus Christ is the God that we serve, that there is this exclusivity, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. We are never going to be saved without Him. We must reject all the other gods of the world. Maybe it's not a 
physical statue that we have at our homes, an idol that we might worship, or a named God, Allah, some other, Buddha, whatever. Lord, we have all the gods of our imagination. We have gods that we've set up in the place that, that just take the place of the Lord God in our hearts. And we just pray, Lord, you'd help us to remove all of these other gods from us so that we know you, that we fear you, that we trust you, that we are holy, that we are obedient. All of these things, Lord, to prove that you truly are our God. And so, Lord, we encourage people here today, first of all, those who are lost, to recognize the Bible has just shown us who the God is that we must serve. Reject all others. That's what we have to do. And then for Christians, we, we claim that we love you, that we know you. Then we have to have lives that are holy. We, we must be obedient to you. Every day we must act like Christians are supposed to act to show that you truly are our God. Help us to do that, Lord. Speak to your people today. Draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a moment ago I said, you're not going to be able to keep all the Ten Commandments perfectly. You can't do it. We start out with that premise. God says, keep them all, but we know we're still sinners. We have the sinful nature in us. We're not going to be able to keep all of them perfectly. And the wonderful thing about that is, God still says they have to be kept perfectly, doesn't he? Never, never sets aside the law. Says it doesn't have to be done. No, it always does have to be done. Thank God for this, that Jesus Christ did it for us. By our faith, trust in Him, He gives us the righteousness that we need. He covers all of those sins, all the imperfections. Grace is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. He saves us by His grace, but He still demands the law. He still demands, demands obedience to it. And so as a Christian, to prove that you know God, that you love Him, your heart is changed so that you do want to obey God. If you don't feel that, if you say, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter to me whether I'm serving God and doing what's right, then you better go back and find out if the grace of God has ever touched your heart. Has He cleansed you from your sins? He changes people that He saves. So examine your heart. Do you find those things that I talked about there? That's the way that you know that God is your God. If he's not your God, you're not saved. That, that's the crux of the matter. You're not saved unless he is your God. Consider that as you sing. If you have questions about what we've said and you want to know more, we have men in the back that are willing to help you. You come to the front. You know, we don't care where you go. Stay after service, whatever. We're willing to talk to you about the Lord. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.